Hello everyone. Today I continue the student economist with me, Avi Rafraelia, and Arush Law. Today we're joined by Morgan Springer, who has kindly who kindly joins us again. And uh, how are you today? Yeah, I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me on again. Uh, excited to talk about economic news, I suppose. <laughs> it's great to have you back on. Uh, so let's get started, guys. New stories of the week. Um, so I guess I'm going first. Uh, one sort of big piece of news, I think. Bitcoin peaks at a record high, close to almost $20,000. Um, hasn't peaked this high since about three years ago, uh, where it's only, I mean, it was only like a hundred or so dollars below what it is now. But still, I think sort of this peak now, especially at a time like this for economies is uh, quite interesting for cryptocurrencies. Um, I think it's interesting to look at uh, I mean, I don't especially know why Bitcoin's peaked right now, um, but it's interesting looking at maybe the use of virtual currencies and sort of the sort of decline in physical cash, which is happening now, but it's also been happening over the last decade or so, um, and what sort of what future cryptocurrencies hold uh, in our society. Yeah, it's a really interesting point you bring up, and cryptocurrencies are looking like they could be the future of the way we exchange goods and services, being cryptocurrency being the, the, the new pound or dollar, as it were, as it makes it easier, you, it's all digitalized. But moving on, Arsh, what's your new story of the week? Yeah, so we spoke a few weeks ago about the success of some developing economies around the world, some emerging market economies. And I wanted to um, speak about one economy that's been particularly successful, um, and that's Taiwan over this time. Now, it's been through a really kind of a um, period of negative growth before um, the virus hit, actually. Um, three years ago, a prominent scholar declared that it was on the brink of death, uh, its economy, that is. Um, but it seems that actually it's one of the world's fastest growing economies in 2020. It's actually one of the only economies in the world to have grown, have positive growth of about 2% this year. Um, and it's interesting to see what factors are actually behind this. So first of all, it's actually one of the countries which has dealt most successfully with the pandemic. Um, it's actually the only one to have contained COVID-19, for example, without closing many schools, offices and shops, uh, because the government, one of the reasons for this is that the government was alert to new diseases in China and began screen visitors from Wuhan at the end of 2019. Um, secondly, also, Taiwan's manufacturers have been well positioned to cater to global demand. So um, electronics, for example, account for a third of Taiwan's exports. And with so many people obviously forced to work from home at the moment, uh, sales of products like tablets, computers and headphones have been really strong. So global trade has shrunk 10% this year, but Taiwan's exports have actually increased by 5%. So it's kind of moving against world trends. Um, and it's also been a benefit, um, it's also benefits, benefited from the tensions between China and America. Um, so many Taiwanese firms were located in China, but in order to avoid American tariffs, they've moved back into China, um, back into the, sorry, back into Taiwan. Um, so, for example, uh, the computer manufacturer Compal moved back home. So, um, therefore, investment in factories and other fixed assets in Taiwan have actually increased um, to over $140 billion and are on a new record track. Uh, they're, they're set to reach a new record uh, this 
and next year. So there seems to be greater confidence in the Taiwanese economy, and it'll be interesting to see whether this momentum will last or whether it's uh, just a deviation from a, a, a previous decline, um, or, or whether it's actually this kind of uh, boost in the economy um, has inspired uh, greater incentivization and could lead to future supply side improvements, which lead to long run economic growth. So it'd be really interesting to keep an eye on this one. Yeah, it's a very interesting point. Uh, and I'd like to put a sort of counter argument that with what China is doing with Hong Kong in the national security laws, and previously we've had lots of riots there, it, China is starting to put more control over its autonomous regions. And some could say the writing is on the wall for Taiwan. What do you guys think of that? Uh, I feel like with sort of Chinese recent actions, as yet, the writing could potentially be on the wall, but uh, I don't know. I think at a time like this where everything's a bit up in the air, things are, I wouldn't say unstable, but I think they're, to say the least, fragile. Um, the sort of uh, prosperity, well, not prosperity, the stability which has been uh, created in sort of places like China and Taiwan at the moment due to handling of the pandemic. Um, maybe you could say, yeah, the writing is on the wall, but I feel like as sort of this progresses, uh, there could be success for Taiwan. Um, they might, I don't know, I'm not entirely sure. I think it's too, it's too close to call at the moment. Uh, yeah, I, I think it kind of, it might just depend on uh, whether Taiwan can sort of remain, I guess, separate um, from China. So, for example, some of its firms um, could continue to diversify away um, from China, for example, if um, tariffs are maintained by the new Biden administration, um, which obviously do harm China. And if businesses can continue to move into the mainland um, in this way, I, I think they could continue to reap the benefits that I spoke about. Um, but also, what could sort of, um, it sort of detract away from this is that the surge in investment in Taiwan does have its limits, whilst um, there, are, there, is, there is actually a movement of Taiwanese workers to China at the moment. So I don't think it really can, in the long run, become separate from uh, the Chinese mainland, which could hurt this continuing momentum in its economy. It's a very interesting topic that we will surely, I'm sure, will pick up developing economies, in particular Taiwan, in the future, in future podcasts. But now moving on to the spending review a couple of weeks ago. Now, this was a key talking news and media sites. But I want your guys, uh, you guys to have an opinion on this. What do you think about the cut in foreign aid? And given that the UK were giving 0.7% of their GDP, they've now cut this down to 0.5. And that is between Germany, who give 0.6%, and France, who give 0.4%. Considering that we're a bigger economy than France and a smaller economy than Germany, surely this is the right move. But what do you guys think? Uh, so I think it's really important to have a, obviously have a focus on 
um, the domestic side of things and make sure funds are available for a domestic recovery um, and for increased government spending in sectors in, in the UK at the moment. Um, and that the idea that you know the UK are kind of moving away from a, a moral obligation to developing nations, which has been um, promoted by the likes of David Cameron and Tony Blair, um, can be argued against by the Conservative government due to the fact that they plan to return to a 0.7% um, spending of 0.7% uh, GDP spending on foreign aid uh, in the future. However, I think the debate about foreign aid shouldn't really be about, say, arbitrary targets and comparing um, who, say, between us, France and Germany, um, contributes what percentage of their GDP. I think it really should be about reforming the system of foreign aid so that it can work better. And in this way, um, rather than saying that we'll return to a 0.7% target in the future, we could, in, in the long run, by actually having a benefit, by, by making foreign aid work better, we could be able to reduce this, um, this kind of target anyway. Uh, and I think one way to do that is by reducing the amount of government-to-government -government transfers which foreign aid currently entails, um, which due to the presence of, say, cor uh, corrupt, extractive governments in developing nations um, can be quite ineffectual. Instead, I feel that um, a push for bottom-up foreign aid policies might be more effective. Uh, and essentially, kind of bottom-up policies uh, intend, intend to work with uh, local communities. So, for example, in this way, foreign aid can be spent on, say, training programs for workers in local communities, um, on investments in infrastructure. And in this way, there can start to be um, an improvement, say, in, in um, production levels in these areas. And, and, in this, and also, a local community skills and capabilities can be grown as well. Um, and it could also boost the community, a community's um, or a local city's ability for self-sufficiency as well. So instead of having foreign aid not really working by continuing government to government transfers, by looking at more of a bottom-up approach and focusing on working together with local communities, then by making it perhaps more effective, um, and say increasing employment and increasing skills uh, and self-sufficiency, then in the future foreign aid can go down. So I don't think it should be a question of targets, I think it should be a question of reforming the system, which I know is difficult at the moment due to obviously the UK government having many domestic concerns, but I think it will be a, um, a policy which will reap rewards in the long run, um, such as allowing developing economies to um, develop further and therefore reducing their, uh, the their reliance on foreign aid in the future. Yeah, I I think what Arsh said has actually been quite insightful. Uh, I agree with him on a lot of points. Um, I especially agree about the sort of uh, ineffectiveness almost of the government to government transfers and the importance of sort of uh, more grassroots campaigns which can be put in place to train workers and improve communities. Um, but I also think that uh, with sort of this cut in foreign aid, I feel like you've obviously got the domestic issues to worry about, but also this could be seen as maybe a bit more of a populist move. Um, I think if the government can be seen to be spending more money on Britain and its own domestic issues, it will probably win over a lot of support. Uh, we've seen how sort of big the issue of Brexit is and the sort of uh, the campaign of putting Britain first as a nation 
how that gained a lot of popularity among a large amount of voters. And also, I feel like, especially with the government handling of the coronavirus, I feel like a lot of people have become very uh, disenchanted with what the government's done. Uh, the sort of the failed track and trace schemes, um, the issues around free school meals. So I think if the government can be be seen to be putting more money into the, well, taking money out of uh, things like foreign aid, which a lot of people might perceive as uh, money being spent on issues which aren't their own, um, I think it can be maybe a popularity move to maybe boost the government's sort of approval rating or maybe just their public reputation. Because I feel like at the moment, with the sort of the amount of blunders in terms of finances, but also um, bonds in terms of things like Brexit and free school meals and uh, track and trace and vaccines and all the other things which people have tried to hold the government accountable to and have sort of just gone wrong. Um, I think this could be seen as a popular move. Um, I think people need something to feel good about at the moment. And I feel like more money going towards them and their issues could be seen as a, as a positive for this government. Yeah, I think that's a really good point you make there, Morgan. Um, I'd argue, though, that perhaps it could alienate some voters and it could alienate some support. So, for example, there's been um, sort of a major hit, hit, um, hit back against the government's cut down of the, of foreign aid, of, of the foreign aid target by, say, the Labour uh, shadow chancellor. Um, and so, so in, in that way, it could be a bit of a split between, say, support for the move and um support for actually sticking with a higher aid target. Um, but also, I think that it's important to, to, to know that, we'll also see whether um, now having more funds for domestic expenditure will actually be effective um, in itself. Um, and whether, say, um, that will be granted in a, an effective way to local, uh, to constituencies and MPs and local leaders uh, who, need, who need this, who need these funds. Um, and due to the fact to increasing centralisation, what we're kind of seeing at the moment, um, that whether that actually occurs is kind of in the balance. So I guess it again depends on spending funds wisely, um, and that I feel uh, is a is a matter which we can't really be too sure about. So, in in moving on, what do you think about the freezing of key workers' wages outside of the NHS? Uh, I think it will prove to be an unpopular move. I mean, while from an economic standpoint, some may argue that it's a necessary move, I feel like in the long run, uh, considering that all uh, the things that sort of these key workers have done for us uh, over this pandemic and over the entire year, uh, it won't be received well, especially when there's been other issues around financing, such as back in October, I believe it was, uh, people were getting quite frustrated over the MPs getting a rise in payment around £3,000, I think it was, um, somewhere around that margin. Uh, and also obvious issues around um, free school meals being provided, saying that there weren't enough funds there. Uh, I feel like this government has had a, a sort of a regular problem with people being uh, angered by their financial choices in terms of uh, the funding of the sort of... Uh, key things which we will care about so the key workers the children um and while from an economic standpoint of course uh, during a pandemic during a recession people might argue well this is necessary you've got to think about how this will affect the country as a whole like we're not going to come out of this uh this sort of like this pandemic on a good fitting i don't think any way you put it you know whether you cut wages or whether you don't um 
but I think I I personally wouldn't agree with the government choice, but I don't think there's any sort of better way to do it. Maybe, um, but then again, I don't think there is any good way. It's a sort of lesser of two evils, if I'm being honest. Yeah, um, again, I think Morgan makes a really good point there. Um, I'd argue though that uh, the government's move could actually hold back future innovation uh, in the health in the health service. So. Um, before before the pandemic, for example, eighty percent of appointments, um, NHS appointments, were face to face. However, now they count for much fewer. Uh, many many appointments have moved to be online uh, and have to have moved to be um, sort of what well, with people just staying at home. Um, and, and in this way, actually, call centres, for example. Um, have been able to treat patients to a greater extent uh, and this has been a really effective way in getting people more efficient and more um, and, and just providing them with healthcare quicker rather than having to go through what's often been called a bit of a conveyor belt of getting treatment from the NHS um, and actually other innovations have come about um, at the pan from the pandemic as well so for example there's this uh, remote monitoring system for people with higher risk diabetes uh, it was introduced before the pandemic, uh, but the focus then switched to COVID-19 uh, after, after the pandemic um, hit, whilst um, the pandemic has also in, in injected um, sort of the, uh, the introduction of a new app to, to allow this remote monitoring of patients to work more efficiently. Uh, whilst COVID-19 virtual wards have also begun to kind of spring up, and in this way, Medics can kind of use remote monitoring to keep track of people with a range of different um, health conditions. So the pandemic has, has therefore shown us a, a real surge in innovation um, due to the kind of shock to the NHS system. Um, and it's promised an improvement in, say, the productivity of the system, also the quality of treatment, uh, the technical efficiency of the healthcare system, uh, and therefore the capability for its productive capacity to be boosted. So my argument would be that pay freezes um, results perhaps in a lack of incentive for future innovation. Um, we look at supply side policies, in, which include um, income rises as being key in providing an incentive um, for supply side improvement. So if the government freezes wages now, could we see um, a bit of a halt to this as uh, the innovation which we see um, in the NHS, which is so helpful in so many different ways. Um, and, and another way it's, it's really helpful is that it could reduce future public sector spending by the government on the NHS by leading to more of a supply side improvement. So in this way, I think we can see that actually a long-term reward might be gained um, if spending is maintained uh, now and, and if pay, um, pay freezes aren't put in place. Um, so I think the government could be here being a bit too myopic, be being a bit too myopic uh, in its approach. Yeah, and I, I'd just like to give my opinion purely on for the freezing of wages. And I think during the pandemic, as Morgan said, the key workers have, is, the key workers have got us through it. And essentially the key workers they do for, for us during the pandemic is the better our economy is going to bounce back because essentially if we look at the NHS the easier we can curve the virus uh, 
we can curb the virus, but e easier and quicker we can open up the economy. So they work hand in hand. And the freezing of key workers' wages is absolutely, sh uh, for me, I think it's just, it's, I won't say it's a return to austerity measures, but I believe David Cameron did it after 2008. And we've had another government do it 10 years later in another recession. The, these key workers shouldn't be this, the scapegoat for increased public spending. So I think it's pretty, pretty, pretty appalling. But moving on, guys, how do you think the new infrastructure fund is going to work? And this is the fund that is there to level up. Level up the UK between the north and south. So how do you think it's going to work? Um, I feel like there's been a lot of efforts. I mean, maybe not a lot of efforts, but I feel like uh, the issue of the sort of the north-south divide in this country, especially in terms of economics, um, since there's sort of been a lot of uh, lots of jobs uh, and the sort of overseas. Uh, sorry. Uh, so there's always been an issue between uh, the North and the South, with the North and the South divide, uh, especially in terms of economics, especially in terms of outsourcing jobs and sort of a loss of employment up there. Um, and I feel like while these infrastructure funds are a good step forward, um, it depends on what they'll actually be able to achieve. Um, I don't know the specifics of them all. Um, but I feel like one of the issues is that the government's constantly sort of proposing these funds. Uh, you've got the sort of reinvestment funds, you've got the green bonds which are being proposed, you've got this new uh, infrastructure fund, uh, whereas you also at the same time have regular cuts, uh, as uh, you were saying before, austerity measures being reintroduced sort of to an extent. Um, so it sort of feels like it's a bit. On, I don't especially know where this government's trying to go because it constantly seems like, on one hand, they've got the money to do anything, and on the other hand, they constantly have to make cuts and uh, reductions for certain things. So while I think it's a potentially good idea to invest more in the north, uh, especially considering sort of historic uh, neglect that part of the UK has faced. Um, I don't know. I think especially at a time like this, it's a bit unstable to be, while investment is good to try and get the UK back on its feet after a pandemic like this one, uh, I don't know how successful efforts will prove. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And actually it's part of, um, as Morgan said, it's got lots of um, different sort of uh, aspects about it. Does the infrastructure um, um, sort of fund. So for example, it, it, it's looking at say, um, helping the UK achieve its commitment of net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Um, and it looks to actually co-invest alongside private investors uh, through a mixture of loans and guarantees, as well as taking equity stakes in projects. Um, so I think that's really interesting because it, it looks at, say, not wanting to sort of push out private investors completely. Um, and actually, it, although sort of increased government um, interaction with different infrastructure projects is often look, sort of frowned upon by say free market economists who, who believe in 
you know, a, a reduction of government intervention, I think this could be a really good way of improving um, the coherence between uh, the government and sort of local MPs and local leaders who, who require funds. Um, for instance, by effective communication channels um, and an understanding of the needs of particular constituencies, um, this this process could be particularly effective and actually that's what it signals um, by actually trying to focus on the newly gained um, conservative party seats um, in sort of the previous red wall uh, in, in, in the north of the country um, it's looking to help places which have been previously um, sort of cut off from from spending and, and, and the government's focuses so I think in that way it could be really really effective um, because its main goals are to improve coherence between the government and um, infrastructure projects. Uh, so I think that could be, it could be re really, really um, effective in that way. Uh, and, and also we've spoken, I think we spoke last time with Morgan as well about the importance of green growth um, around the world this time and how the, uh, the pandemic could be a, a time, uh, a launch pad into green growth. Um, and with the, with the infrastructure funds aim, of helping the, the UK achieve its its own um, environmental economic aims, um, I think a movement in the future into the development of green infrastructure, uh, and and this can be it could be created, and green infrastructure uh, is so important, obviously, to the future of a country's economic growth. Uh, it can be, and it can provide many employment opportunities, previously. Um, sort of unseen in an economy. So I think on a, on, on a number of levels, the infrastructure fund um, promises a lot to the economy. Um, and obviously it will be important to see whether it actually achieves what it's been set out to do, um, which previous um, sort of similar funds haven't actually achieved. So for example, uh, the Green Investment Bank in 2012 was set up by the Conservative government. Um, but it was soon sold off to an Austra Australian private equity group, uh, according to the Financial Times. So um, in the past, it seems that the UK hasn't, the government hasn't really adhered to its um, such funds. So I, hopefully this time it will um, be, will, will remain committed to its pledges um, and we could see real rewards from this new infrastructure fund. Yeah, and Orish, your latter point about whether the fund actually works was exactly the point I was going to bring up. And it's, it's the, the question still remains with that green investment Sorry. bank uh, that was sold off to Macquarie Group. It's, um, we've seen this happen before and it's all big, big projects and very, very uh, little reward that comes from it. But moving on. And this is probably the most relevant topic, very, very quickly, because we're running out of time, guys. Um, Brexit, deal or no deal, where I believe that uh, Boris Johnson is going to Brussels uh, to engage in trade talks. And they're, they're, the negotiators are putting a paper together around what are the sticking points. But do you guys see a deal happening or is it looking like no deals the more likely option here um i think for a while it's looks like no deal might be more likely uh, because the key sticking points um over a deal such as fisheries and a level, a level playing field for competition and um ideas about state aid continue to be um debated 
by the EU and and the UK. Um, and also, whilst whilst though there are some factors working in favour of a deal, such as um, say the pressure that the, the backbench Tory revolt against the tier system, which could put more pressure on um, the government to actually deliver a deal as well as the likelihood of the Labour opposition to support the, to support a new deal, um, because they're obviously very, they are rather pro-deal at the moment. That's the uh, position that they have publicly taken. Um, what could actually slow, slow the process of a deal down is EU bureaucracy. Um, and actually, whilst um, it actually could be individual member nations which could slow down the process, for example, um, some countries like Finland actually require um, Parliament to vote on whether it will accept a particular deal, whilst um, other Parliaments might have to also demand a say and might have to have a discussion over the deal um, if it sort of falls within its own, if it has implications on that country. So I think such bureaucratic measures um, could seriously slow down the process and therefore um, could place a, a, a real uh, restriction on, on the, our ability to form a deal. Um, and also, really quickly, um, that the Office of Budget Responsibility has actually predicted next year, um, and also a longer term loss of output, has actually been greater um, with a deal. Uh, and that could be due to so many reasons, um, for example, us having to face the common external tariff of the EU. So in, in that way, there could be an extra sort of motivation for the government to push for um, a no deal, especially with the um, expected fall in GDP this year being 11.2%. So I think the signs are leading here to a no deal um, Brexit, but um, obviously we'll have to wait and see. I, yeah, I feel like what Arish said about EU bureaucracy um, is very important to keep in mind. I feel like, uh, while I don't want to sound like a pessimist here, um, I, as I may have come across, um, I don't think that now of all times will be the, be the one time that we finally get a deal that we're comfortable with. Um, I feel that especially now, um, we've sort of if we if after if after four years, whatever it's specifically, however long it's specifically been, uh, we can't get a deal which we're happy with, and there's been this sort of this constant fight over getting a good deal. I don't think we're going to get one now, especially at a time like this where uh, sort of everyone's suffering from pandemic. Um, I feel like uh, while this government might try to find one, I feel it's becoming sort of ever more likely but we're, it's only going to end in no deal. Yeah, guys, I'm going to agree with you. I think no deal it was 50-50 a couple of weeks ago, and I think now it's probably leaning towards a no deal. But I, I, I'd like to consider myself an optimist, and I think there is still hope. And this, technically, there's still time. To get a deal and we've seen uh, the UK and EU strike deals at the last minute and it's essentially politics rather than actually the contents of the deal. The, the saying is the 
sticking points is fishing etc but this is all essentially politics with fishing between the French and the British but we could talk about this topic for the whole podcast if you really wanted to but that's all we've got time for so I'd like to thank Morgan for coming on and my co-host Arish and um, if you do want to uh, join us on the podcast as a guest please do fill out the form on the website and We'll be back next week. Stay tuned.